The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is really about a history of privacy in modern America. And I've been reading this wonderful book called The Known Citizen, A History of Privacy in Modern America by Sarah Igo, and she is a professor. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her in in just a minute, but I love the cover of this book. We've got like a guy looking through, um, you know, uh, binoculars, and you wonder what he's looking at, you know. (laughs) So it's just a, a great cover. So let me tell you a little bit about Sarah, who's coming to us all the way from the East Coast this morning. Sarah E. Igo is who, by the way, got her BA at Harvard, which is where I got my negotiation and mediation training. And she has a PhD from Princeton. And she is a professor of history and director of American studies at Vanderbilt University with appointments in law, political science, sociology, medicine, health, and health and society. Sarah teaches and writes about modern American intellectual, cultural, legal, and political history with a great deal of research, and her research interests include the history of human sciences, the sociology of knowledge, and the history of privacy in the public sphere. She is also the author of the award-winning The Average American Surveys, Citizens, and the Making of a Mass Public which is Harvard Press, which was written, you know, came out in 2007. This was an editor's choice selection of the New York Times and one of the Slate's best books of 2007. And she was the winner of the President's Award of the Social Science History Association and the Charon Book Prize and a finalist for the Wrights Mills Award of the American Sociological Association. And this is her new book, and it is really fascinating. And, you know, I do a lot of research on privacy, both mostly in the legal area. So this was really an eye-opener for me. She's done tremendous research, fascinating. And so we're so thrilled to have her join us. You can find out more about her at our website at privacypiracy.org. And we link to her website and you'll see her picture in her bio and a JPEG of her book. But we also link to the website for her at as.vanderbilt.edu. And then you can put in her name, Sarah Igo, and that's spelled I-G-O. Okay, so Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to uh, be on the show. This is really wonderful. So you titled this book about privacy, The Known Citizen. So um, what what were your thoughts about calling it The Known Citizen? I know you talked about another book that you had read, but what would you hope that that would invoke in me and the other readers? Um, thank you, and thank you first for um, for liking my cover, <laughs> which I also think is beautiful and evocative of the um, kind of longing that Americans have had to know, to know things about each other, right. to know things about themselves, but also um, the fears uh, that come attached to that, of being too well-known, um, of being someone who is known so well that they no longer have any freedom or autonomy um, to act. Um, and so it was that tension, really, um, between um, being known as one wished and being um, known in a way that seemed more sinister or menacing that, um, that got me to the title, The Known Citizen, which actually was drawn from a poem by uh, the wonderful British poet W.H. Auden uh, called The Unknown Citizen. Um, and he writes about the ways that modern societies know us so thoroughly in so many different ways uh, and yet don't know us at all. And it was that poem that really... Um, seem to me to encapsulate some of our um, tensions and dilemmas around privacy in the United States um, over the last century. Right. So, you know, I love the way you talk about, you know, how we want to be as individuals, we, we really want our privacy, we want to have that control over our privacy. But yet, we also want to be known, I, you know, I was thinking about the Kardashians and all of these, you know, reality shows. And, and, you know, when you go on Facebook, the things that are people are saying, and, and I'm on Facebook. And, you know, I mean, we, we have this thing that we want to connect and we want to be, you know, some of us want to be really genuine and really be out there, but yet we want to be able to decide who gets to see it and who doesn't get to see it. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating dilemma, isn't it? It is. Um, and I think um, the way that you've just put it really gets us closer to understanding why uh, it's a dilemma and why privacy is such a difficult issue for us to resolve um, in any of the ways we might imagine, you know, either technologically, politically, legally, um, what have you, culturally. Um, starting, I think, in the late 19th century, Americans really started to grapple with this problem in new ways because of all the new means of exposure that were available. Um, and um, those, uh, whether they were technologies or um, kind of political developments, they um, they did allow people to be known in new ways and to, um, therefore to feel that their privacy was being violated, but they also allowed them and were interesting to people and, and often adopted and assimilated into people's lives because they also allowed them to do things um, and allowed them to gain certain kinds of social benefits. And so that, that tension really runs through, I think, our whole um, history of modern privacy debates uh, and really helps us explain, again, you know, why they're really difficult to resolve. I don't think we're going to resolve them by uh, imagining that privacy has just, you know, gone out the window because of a few bad actors or because people don't care about it anymore. Um, well, there are some bad actors, and right. some people do not care perhaps very much about their privacy. That That is actually not, I think, what's at the root of our, our really fundamental um, uh, struggles over privacy today. Yeah, we've we've heard these, uh, you know, people in Silicon Valley say, oh, you know, privacy is dead. But boy, if you get into their privacy. <laughs> then, well, exactly. You know. <laughs> They're some of the ones who protect their privacy the best. Uh, right. Because they understand. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I remember when I was doing my research on 
privacy, you know, and, and kind of getting from the issue of like understanding about identity theft. And that was really the fallout of a lack of privacy and really starting to look at that back in the late nineties. And, and I thought, oh, you know, this all started with, you know, uh, when Louis Brandeis and uh, Samuel Warren wrote their uh, wrote their law review article from your alma mater, Harvard, and they talked about the right to privacy, the right to be let alone, right? But it, it, it really started before that, way before that, when you talked about that in your book. You want to kind of show us a little bit about that history there? Sure, yeah. Well, so Americans and, you know, people undoubtedly all over the globe have um, have cared about privacy, I think, in really um, diverse ways over, um, uh, uh, you know, centuries. Um, but to me, the, the kind of the dawn of our modern privacy debates was in the 19th century, and it came from a whole um, a bunch of intersecting developments. It came from uh, a mass media that was newly national. Uh, it came from technological developments in um, new ways of capturing people's voices and images through instantaneous photography, through wiretapping, through uh, both the telephone and the telegraph, um, and the circulation of images, the ability to kind of um, virtually eavesdrop on people, as well as um, developments at the level of state in terms of centralizing bureaucracies uh, and also uh, centralizing private corporations, um, for instance, credit bureaus. So a whole bunch of things came together in the late 19th century to really uh, raise privacy issues in a new way. Um, and I think the most, perhaps the most important development there was a recognition that privacy invasions were not simply physical. They were not um, uh, simple problems of barriers and walls and property lines and so forth, which had been the way that Americans had typically, I would say, uh, had thought about privacy uh, before the later 19th century um, and had certain kinds of protections, um, constitutional protections, at least those people who were privileged and propertied against privacy invasions from the state, um, all of a sudden they realized, uh, you know, there were all kinds of parties and all kinds of techniques, and they were often virtual, uh, that were uh, at hand that allowed um, people's privacy to be invaded. So it's really that recognition of virtual invasions, and calls for a new right to privacy that recognized um, that people's personalities and images and reputations could be um, affected by privacy invasions, not just their property interests. Right. And a lot of people don't recognize or know that the word privacy really doesn't appear in the federal constitution. What's interesting That's is right. that it does in the California Constitution, and there's so, I think there's a handful of states, like five, mm -hmm. in which mm -hmm. privacy actually is a word in the Constitution. And my home state, which you're from originally too, um, yes, it's, yes, a, yes. yeah, that it that it actually appears in the preamble of the California State Constitution, and maybe that's why we are probably the most privacy-conscious state in terms of the legislation that has passed in the past, you know, 20 years on privacy. Yes, I would say so. I mean, California has led there, as in many areas, of course, um, but, uh, but yes, certainly in privacy, no question about it. 
Yeah. So but my students are always, for example, yeah. very surprised uh, when I um, ask them, when do you think, you know, Americans got a, a constitutional right to privacy or right. when was that announced? And they, <laughs> they are astonished, you know, to understand finally, really, that it's not in the Constitution, um, per right. se, uh, and that it was really only in 1965 that the Supreme Court uh, found privacy in the Constitution. They imagined, as in fact did many Americans before the Supreme Court did that in 1965, that they were, they did have a right to privacy, right? But that was something they were entitled to as citizens. Um, and so it, it brings many people short to realize um, that that was not the case. And that, in fact, in many nations, there still is no right, although um, there is a right to privacy uh, announced in certain kinds of in international documents like um, the Declaration of Human Rights. Right, right. It's so it's so fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about um, you know, when you were talking about that private companies and private citizens seem to be, you know, the first scare in mm -hmm. originally, mm -hmm. but uh, weren't Americans concerned about the intrusions of government? Yes, um, and that is actually often, I think, where Americans have first gone with their worries about privacy, that it's about um, state oppression or state invasions, and very much a part of um, sort of American national debates and American national identity even to sort of worry about um, uh, or creating bulwarks between the citizen and the state. Although I, I think it is worth underlining that the modern right to privacy really comes from private invaders of privacy, um, of individual privacy that is um, uh, private citizens, but also corporations and news media and so forth. But, uh, but yeah, certainly by um, the turn of the 20th century and as we move into the 20th century, you start to see growing fears about an expanding administrative state. And that's because the state presence in most Americans' lives increases in the 20th century uh, with the rise of um, new kinds of strictures and regulations, but also social benefits programs. Um, all of a sudden, people need to show documents uh, right. to cross borders, to get uh, certain kinds of um, uh, to pass through certain kinds of gateways in the society uh, to get a social security check uh, and so forth and so um, it's it's really in the 20s and 30s that you start to see uh, a kind of new privacy concern um, develop uh, around the administrative state and about state tracking or identifying of citizens through documents and paperwork right I wonder if any of that really was um, kind of a fallout of World War two when you know, Hitler was making everybody get, you know, they were gathering all this information about people's backgrounds, whether they were a gypsy or a Jewish person or what they were, you know, I think that, I know that's how Europe got a more scared about yes. privacy, right? Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that always for the sort of ordinary citizen that those debates were uppermost, but certainly um, a kind of idea of the European police state was really right. uh, well developed in public discourse. Um, this idea that what made the United States unique was that it did not, you know, people, citizens didn't have to show their papers, right? right. Um, they didn't need to inform the state when they moved to a new address and so forth. And so exactly the introduction of new kinds of um, documentary techniques like birth certificates, passports, social security numbers, and so forth, um, really raised these uh, questions about um, a big, uh, big state, a big brother state, which, of course, people didn't have that language until Orwell published right. it in 1949. But, but that notion, right, of a state um, that is tracking and watching and surveilling. Right, right. So, you know, in your book, you don't have like an exact definition of privacy. I know when um, Brandeis came up with the right to be let alone, that really, 
doesn't encompass what's going on like today you know so it's it's kind of yeah (laughs) Yeah. like it's kind of all over the place huh how would you define it yeah well I I pretty um deliberately resisted um defining privacy and I guess that's because uh, unlike a a philosophical work or even a a legal court that needs to work with a stable definition I think once you start looking at the concept of privacy historically you realize that it's a bit of a fool's errand I mean people have defined privacy in such different ways um, based on their social circumstances political circumstances technological circumstances that um, as a historian it seems to me that we get more um, from um, from understanding that uh, privacy has um, responded to a, a pretty flexible and um, and variegated set of concerns, and that in fact by tracking the different understandings of privacy over time, we get to um, see differently why debates have developed as they have, and also what kind of society um, has made these debates um, or has sparked uh, these kinds of debates. Um, so. Um, so yes, I do not have a specific definition, although the, the, the most helpful way for me to think about um, what privacy has summoned up for Americans has been um, its usefulness really as um, a, a concept that helps to separate the citizen from the society um, that he or she lives in. So really privacy debates have um, tended to occur at those moments when it seems like that relationship between the person and the society is changing and changing rapidly. Um, And so it could be, uh, it could come from any number of different directions, from uh, new developments in photography or databases, if you want to think about technological developments. It could come from social movements that are asking people to divulge different kinds of information about themselves. Or it could come from people feeling that people are divulging too much information about themselves, you know, as with professional memoirs. So um, it's so the kind of diversity of concerns that collect under privacy is what interested me and meant that it was really uh, actually counterproductive to think about privacy as having any single definition. Right. You know, in, in the legal field, and when we go to these International Association of Privacy Professionals, we seem to have to have some kind of a definition. We kind yeah. of talk about it in terms of having a privacy right is a right to be able to control who um, and or what has the ability to, you know, that you have the ability to control what information, whether it be virtual or surveillance or whatever it is, or or social security number, that we have the control, right to control who gets to see the information that we have. Um, and it's, yes. it's a control issue as opposed to the right to be let alone because the control issue kind of includes what uh, Brandeis was worried about when they had the instant photography, et cetera, et cetera. But um, so it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I can see from yeah. a sociological uh, a, a pr- approach, you're going to not want to be locked in. And and you're right, from a legal, we want to have, what are we going to call this? <laughs> right, we need to have a, a little bit more structure to it. But yeah, I think, you know, even that um, turn to thinking about control as a way of thinking about privacy is maybe relatively new. I mean, I think that really comes in the 1960s and 70s when people really got concerned for the first time um, about uh 
or at least for the first time in large numbers, about information privacy. Right. Because I think the turn to control already, in a way, reveals something interesting, which is that um, we're interested in control, not in isolation, right? Or, or yeah. the belief that you could somehow close everybody out. I think that, you know, ship has sailed. <laughs> right. <laughs> By the right. time you start talking about control, right? Right. Um, and it's not right. just about property lines. It's not about just people not seeing you. It's about a whole um, different uh, dance, which is around uh, letting certain things out in order to get what you need, but not letting people to see in on things that you don't want them to see. So you get right. into a much more hazy area there. Right. Even if you think about the Kardashians, you know, they they will put themselves out there, you know, in their television mm-hmm. show. But when it comes to privacy in their home or privacy about their relationship outside of the TV show, then they get very privacy concerned. So it's interesting right. how people choose. And, and we do this on social media. And then of course we're upset when when we share things um in on facebook for example or instagram but if on facebook if they're sharing and we don't know about it then that's when people get really upset so it's kind of an evolution let's go back to 1965 though and when the supreme Mm -hmm. court actually said there was a right to privacy with the Griswold case, Griswold versus Connecticut. And it's interesting that it was Planned Parenthood, which is now, again, in the forefront, right? It's amazing. Yes. Yes. So yes. talk about that a little bit, what happened and what was uh, going on. Sure. Well, so in 1965, the Supreme Court um, announces uh, or enunciates a right to privacy for the first time, a constitutional right to privacy in the United States. Um, and what I find fascinating about that case, it was a birth control case. Um, it was a case um, that uh, essentially gave a right to privacy to married um, adults um, in the United States who were undergoing contraceptive counseling or wanted to use contraception. Um, and it, um, to me, was a really interesting uh, case because up until that point, um, birth control or what we would now call reproductive rights was not particularly dealt with as a privacy concern. And mm-hmm. yet the court chose to um, take that moment and that case to talk about um, a right to privacy. And in fact, announced a right to privacy that was very, very limited. It was limited to heterosexual married couples um, who were among um, the people in the United States at that time who probably least uh, demanded or needed a right to privacy. So I just found that um, kind of paradox really interesting. You know, the people who really clamored for or would have wanted a right to privacy in 1965 in the realm of intimate behavior sexuality would have been those of non-normative uh, sexualities, right? Would have been the gay men who were being policed and surveilled and um, uh, public restrooms or right, right. Um, the, you know, a whole host of other single women um, who had their, their sexualities police. So there is this, it, it was a, um, a moment for me to reflect on the way that privacy rights have often been, though they seem to be progressive and liberating in certain ways, have also acted to exclude. And one thing that you can say about the right to um, privacy in the United States is that it has typically, as have many rights, you know, come more easily and earlier uh, to those who are already um, endowed with greater privileges in the society. 
Right. So one of the stories about um, privacy in the 20th century is really a struggle over who gets it, uh, who uh, can ask, for, can demand um, privacy, and the way that privacy itself has been used as a way to kind of limit um, or gra- sort of create gradations in people's full social citizenship in the United States. And so, again, this great um, victory for privacy in 1965 comes with this other side to it, which is um, the exclusion of certain populations from um, a right to privacy at that same moment. Yeah, that was really kind of um, the beginning of the whole uh, sexual equality and and all sorts of things were coming up in 1965. And then when we mm-hmm. get to 1970, a lot of the citizens were calling for fewer secrets in public life. Remember, this was the the I was watching, I was in college, I hate to tell you that, but I graduated in 1970, <laughs> but I remember right after I graduated, I was watching, um, you know, the the revelations on, on Nixon, and yeah. um, and Dean was, uh, what was his name, uh, John Dean was, John Dean, yeah. yeah, he was testifying, and I was mesmerized by this, you know, what was mm-hmm. happening, and everybody wanted to know more, we wanted transparency in the government, yeah. And and then, of course, this was the whole uh, feminist revolution and the gay liberation and all these kinds of things were starting. Um, and it really kind of was had their foot in the door with Griswold, right? Yes, yes. Well, Griswold was certainly part of it and was, I think, in some ways already um, a response to kind of rising, um, uh, well, certainly sexual liberalization of certain ways, but also responses to fears of privacy in other domains. But yeah, I mean, I became really fascinated by the 1970s um, while writing this book because it seemed to me so many different things were going on in the realm of privacy. Number one, um, Americans were getting much, much more concerned about um, what they called uh, records privacy Um, and um, the records prison, um, the worry that people were going to be trapped by all these records that had been kept on them without them really noticing it and the rise of data banks and so forth. But on the other hand, they were demanding in their politics, um, of their politicians, um, in social movements, they were demanding um, that people, uh, you know, tell their secrets, uh, whether it was uh, politicians revealing their um, tax returns or their affairs or, um, you know, a, a much more uh, vigorous um, uh, investigative uh, journalism that was, uh, you know, making sure that people knew about past transgressions of public figures, or it was social movements of liberation that said you can't be an authentic and free person unless you reveal who you truly are, your traumas and your sexuality and your um, your even your diseases, right, and your health uh, concerns and so forth. And so, um, so it's a very interesting moment where we see um, a, a kind of tightening or a, a kind of um, rethinking of information privacy in terms of identification and so forth, at the same time that we see this loosening of all kinds of matters that had previously been kept quiet or secret because they were shameful or stigmatized, uh, moving out into the open. And so, um, you know, it's just a fascinating instance of, of privacy seeming to zigzag or move in different ways at the same time, if you see what I mean. So yeah. that um, certain kinds of things, right, uh, were no longer very private, but certain things that had been pretty public, like your address or your telephone number or your social security number even, were becoming more private. So that if we this is sort of gets me back to what I was saying at the very beginning, that if we think of privacy as just one thing or as the same thing all the time, we get really confused because was privacy expanding or was it 
decreasing. It was doing both at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And I think in 1973, if I'm not correct, that's when the Federal Information uh, Practices Act passed, which which demanded that that you could ask government that government couldn't keep things secret, right? That that and that was yeah, that actually was, the, wasn't it that in nineteen seventy three? Yeah, yeah, the Fair Information Practices yeah, and which, then it's the nineteen seventy four yeah. Privacy Act. That yeah, right. that's right. That where the United States and then um a whole bunch of other European countries right at the same time enact these fair information practices. But it only was for access. government. It did not even though at the time they tried to extend it to private industry, but there was so much lobbying against that, and everybody was so upset about all the secrecy that happened in the Nixon administration that I think that was the, um, you know, what happened was that that's why we had the Privacy Act and the uh, Fair yeah. Fair Practice, yeah, the Fair Information Privacy Act. So, yeah, that was all during that time. So that was a big, big shift. I think. Yes, yes, I think it was too. Um, you know, and some of those, um, some of that had been building for some time, but but yeah, a lot happens right in there. And um, and you also do get these, you know, major political developments that for a moment shine a light on um, kind of privacy concerns, just like it's happening today in some ways. Yes, um, but history then, repeating you know, Watergate, itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then Watergate fades, oh, and you know, yeah. all this attention that was going to turn to the private sector, not just pri- federal agencies, right. but we were going to find out what private um, companies were doing with our information, you know, that sort of just uh, falls off the table and... Um, and, and, and you know you what? Know, wonder. Yeah. We are out of time. Do you believe that? Oh, we could I talk for hours. I just love, and we 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 only got up to 1970. So, <laughs> right. There's much more to say. After yeah. <laughs> so I just want to say the name of your book again. First of all, we're speaking with Prof- Professor Sarah Igo, and she is the author of this fascinating book, The Known Citizen: A History of Privacy in Modern America. And you can find out more about her. She's a professor at Vanderbilt. So you can go to as.vanderbilt.edu and then put in her name. And we are just out of time. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Maya. I really enjoyed the conversation I and know. would be happy to entertain questions by email or otherwise from any listeners. Oh, Thanks so much. Great, great. You've been listening to K. Thank you so much. Bye bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website, privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.